As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road. Let's get my action. You're listening to the Tom Fickler Show on WNHHLP 103.5 SM. Your home for community radio. Salutations, New Haven. Salutations, Connecticut. Salutations to the world. And a very special thank you to all our members of the On Service services here on this Veterans Day, uh, wishing you love and and thanking you from our heart. Today we got a, a special guest. He's been with us before, uh, Dr. Cynthia McDermott, and she's going to tell us about a, a project that is really dearly needed during this time of a teacher shortage crisis. So, uh, Cynthia, could you tell us about yourself and uh, and take your time. Tell us a little bit about where you came from and where you're at right now. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Harry. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm awake, which is a good thing. It's uh, early out here in Los Angeles, and uh, we have really overcast skies today. Everybody thinks California is sunny. Mm, no, it's not. Um, so, Jesse, it's always a de- delight to spend time with you. So, my background, um, I started off as a high school English teacher in Philadelphia. I'm a Philly girl. And uh, go Eagles, go Eagles, go Eagles. <laughs> um and I was teaching, you know, in uh, in tough schools in Philadelphia. And in those days, so I just finished my 50th year of teaching. In those days, teachers had a tremendous amount of freedom in the classroom. We were trusted. We were treated as the professionals we were. And I had the opportunity to do some very radical things with our students. Yeah, I had high school kids who couldn't read. So, you know, we did really imaginative, wonderful things that were meaningful to the kids so that the work in the classroom had them connected to what they were doing. What was going on in their lives and what was going on in the schools had a relationship to each other. Over the years, I ended up um, getting my doctorate at Temple University, Go Owls, and started working in higher education. My first position out here in California was at Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is a kind of a working class university. And our students were working, our our folks who were becoming teachers were working in some of our toughest districts. Cal State Dominguez Hills sits right on the border of Compton and, and, um, and that area of the city. And so our teachers were just like the kids I worked with in Philadelphia, were predominantly working with lower class, middle-class kids, kids, second language learners, and they, the education had to be meaningful. We had kids who weren't engaged, kids who weren't, who didn't care about school. And so our teachers needed to understand, which has been my argument for all my teaching, that education has to be meaningful. Going back to John Dewey's perspective, that education has to be about life. And one of the challenges that's happening right now that I'm seeing with teachers and with kids is that we have so moved into the standardization, this standardization of, of, of uh, testing, of the curriculum, of phonics insanity, that our teachers are so overwhelmed with kids who don't participate well, who are not doing well. And they have so much to do, and they're not trusted, that we're losing them. We're losing people out of our field because of all the external pressures that are being put on them. I was just talking the other day to a woman who has been a fabulous teacher, elementary teacher. She's got a couple kids in school. She's working for one of our large school districts out here. And she's done. She's leaving. It's November. She's not waiting until June. She's leaving now. And why is she leaving? She's leaving because she can't teach. She has to do all this other stuff, testing and, you know, 
stuff that she knows is not good for kids. Having kids be able to spit out words without any meaning or comprehension. So we've got this huge challenge right now for teachers who are being asked to do things that they know perfectly well are not helping their kids be learners, be creative, be involved, be emerged. They're, 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 they're just being treated like you know an assembly line. And so how do we help them? How do we get teachers who are currently in the classroom to stay? I don't even know how we get people to come into the profession. I mean, that's what I was doing in Antioch. That was my last teaching position was the, the Dean of Education at Antioch University out here in LA. You know, our numbers were dwindling and dwindling and dwindling. If you look at the numbers of people that have gotten credentials in California, the numbers are going down and down. And Jesse, I think you've said the same thing is going on for you where your pro program numbers are decreasing. So, a group of my colleagues and I were sitting around thinking about what we could do to help. So I'm retired now. The university, for some reason, closed the program. So I'm retired. So what can I do to help? What can I do that is meaningful for teachers? Well, all the work that I've done over the years has been directed to something that I've called democratic teaching, putting students centered into what we do helping them become civically engaged individuals, helping them understand the role they play in a democratic society and helping teachers understand how to do that. And so a democratic classroom is the kind of place where kids are centered in the classroom, where kids get to make decisions, where kids get to be in charge of their own learning in partnership with the teacher, but not being told what to do in a behavioristic model, sit down, be quiet, do it my way. That's exactly the kind of citizen you turn out that doesn't vote, that doesn't care, that isn't informed. So how do we help people with this democratic student-centered approach? So we came up with this notion of a support system. I don't think it exists. So we call it the Progressive Teacher Network. And the goal of that network is twofold. One, to provide opportunity for handbooks on the website for how to do democratic teaching. How do you give students more responsibility in the classroom? But the most important thing is our phone number where someone who's frustrated can call that number, leave a message, and one of us on my advisory board will get back to that person to say to them, What's, what do you need? How can we help? even if it's just to talk to somebody about what's going on. So if I go back to this teacher that I just talked with the other day, she really can't complain about anybody to her, um, to her school because she has a very vindictive principle. And of course, that's another problem. We can talk about that. So she doesn't have anybody to talk with. And why doesn't she have anybody to talk with? Because she can't trust her colleagues to not go to her principal and say, oh, Susie's complaining about you. But so in this conversation that I had with her, she was in tears and I gave her some suggestions about the kinds of things that she can do. She really hadn't thought about changing her curriculum. She hadn't thought about taking more control over the curriculum because Jesse, as you and I know, in spite of all the stuff that happens in the schools right now, once you close your door, you're in charge. And so if a teacher can have more autonomy in the classroom with her kids and have the kids take more responsibility for their work, everybody is going to be a lot happier. Everyone's going to feel like they've accomplished something. Everyone's going to be more engaged in the work they're doing. So having a 20-minute conversation with this teacher and suggesting to her that she tried doing some more student-centered work was like, aha, she was shocked. She hadn't thought about it. She hadn't thought about the fact that she could take authority to herself. And so that evening, she went online. She looked at the handbook that's on the site to look at how you create a democratic classroom. And she called me up the next day, because then I gave her my personal number. She called me up the next day and said, I'm going to try this. Now, I haven't heard from her. That was last week. 
But to allow teachers to do what you and I did in our early days of teaching, no one restricted what I was doing in the classroom. Yeah, we had standards. Yes, we had curriculum. But you met each child as they needed to be met. I didn't standardize my curriculum and teach everything the same at the same time to everybody. It, it, that wouldn't have worked. So I'm hoping that people who need some support, who need some emotional, curricular, technical support, will use this site as a way to feel more power for themselves. Because as we've taken teachers' power away from them, we've taken away their professionalism. So we, we want to think about this concept as we've taken teachers' power away from them. Yes. What we're really talking about is we're disrespecting the professional knowledge they have. Uh, and and we're, we're, we're realizing that teachers are inundated these days with Absolutely. endless uploading of useless data. Absolutely. I have kindergarten teachers who have to send pitches throughout the days to parents of kids smiling. And, and that's in between somebody has vomited, somebody right. has wrecked the bathroom, somebody, so things in between their day they're supposed to be taking photographs and then parents respond. He doesn't look that happy. He doesn't look that happy. I don't consider that really relevant, important data, but the silly things that are going on in there, there's so much assessment. When we were, both you and I were at uh, the Network for Public Education Conference right. in D.C. with Diane Ravage, uh, with, 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 with all kinds of uh uh, significant educators and, and researchers and advocates from across the country. And, 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 and one in particular, uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman, who will be in New Haven next week, ne next week, uh, next Saturday, not this Saturday, next Saturday, New Haven's AFT is having a uh, protect and transform our public schools event uh, in, in New Haven. And it's from 10 to 3, and they give childcare and lunch, all that stuff. But, but Bowman will be uh, one of their keynote speaker. And what Bowman has is offering a piece of legislation that says more teaching, less testing. Yeah. So that idea of, of, of testing, creating the curriculum. So uh, our, our teachers, when you're talking with teachers, you're, when your teachers in L.A., and your teachers in L.A., I, I can tell you, are probably talking about the same thing. Our teachers in Absolutely. Connecticut, our teachers right. in Texas, our teachers in Idaho and Chicago and New Orleans are talking about the same thing. Right. If you thought about about all of this assessment, uh, what does it really mean? What does it do? How does assessment disempower teachers? Well, you know, Jesse, I think the absurdity of the testing insanity that's going on has missed the mark for assessment anyhow. If you're in a classroom and you want to know how well a child is doing on their math or their science or their reading or, or their physical capacity out on the playground, you're watching the child. You're making an assessment in the moment. Teachers do that all the time. That's mostly what we're doing when we're watching to see the results of what we do with a child. And then we change our action based on that assessment. If we're giving standardized testing in spring to children that will not be in our classroom in the fall, then we have totally wasted public money and classroom time. It is so absurd, and I do not know why the method of you know, deciding to not test, to, to sign out, has not caught on more. Why Fair Test's brilliant effort to convince parents to sign their kids out of testing hasn't caught on because we are wasting valuable education time with all of this testing. And you and I both know that if I want to find out how a child is doing, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to give them a logical effort opportunity to tell me how they're doing. You've got all those wonderful books behind you. If you want to know how well a child comprehends something, you ask them to tell you what the story is about. You don't have them regurgitate words. You don't have them do their phonics nonsense. That doesn't tell me how they comprehend anything. You know, Jerry, Jeffsey, years ago when I was doing my doctoral dissertation, it, it, and now these days it sounds kind of sunny, funny, but I was very curious to know, 
at the time I was working in Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Department of Education was on this mad thing for mathematics, which was good. And I was curious to know how we can assess a child and their mathematical understanding using, at those times, were criterion reference tests. Remember when we were doing those? They were pretty good. They gave you some data. So we took this criterion reference test for an entire school district in Pennsylvania, and we divided the kids up. Half the kids took the mathematics test using their just their own ability. The other half of the kids listened to the test by a professional radio announcer who read the test to everybody. It didn't take much um, uh, understanding to realize that the children who heard the test were gonna do better than the kids who had to read it themselves because the math tests were not testing mathematics, they were testing reading. If you can't understand the word problem because your reading skills are not strong, you're not gonna be able to do well. and that. That finding, which in a way was sort of overly simplistic, if I'm going to read a test to a child because I want to know what they understand about the test, I'm going to have a better result if they have to read it themselves. You know that with all the reading you do. You've got kids who are strong readers who have comprehension, and you have kids who can tell you the words and have no comprehension. That's the absurdity of what's happening with testing right now. We're not testing kids for anything that's meaningful to improve the instructional practice. And it's just a total waste of time. And then on top of it, we add all this frustration for teachers, the frustration for kids, the kids who throw up before they come to school because they're so worried about the standardized tests, the parents who are freaking out. I have grandkids. I watch what my daughter-in-law does. She's on her, her cell phone all the time waiting for responses from teachers, and the teachers are responding. I mean, it's just, Jesse, I would not be able to be in a classroom right now, given what we've known about how much freedom we had in the past. So if so, we thought about this, this, yes. this component about the assessment, we spend about $1.7 billion the last I looked uh -huh. every year on standardized assessment. That It's a lot more than that, because if we can count in the states, we'll get lots more. Right. Uh, we spend an, an average, and in this show, my audience is familiar with, I'll always tell them that for the past 20 years, we've been spending $23 billion more on wealthy, predominantly white school districts right. uh, than we do on poor school districts of color and with high right. populations of ESL students and special education students. So we know we spend more. And, and when we look at these assessment results, uh, if we looked at our friend from California, Dr. Steve Krashen, would tell us it's poverty stupid. And That's he right. would he's the one that always says when I compare our, our, our wealthiest students to, to other nations, we top all other nations, our wealthy top theirs, that kind of concept over there. But when we're thinking about this assessment, and it has an impact, it's breaking the heart of my teachers. Yes. Because my teachers, it's, it's sort of like in the spring, we will give the SBAC test. The SBAC is given, and students will fill it out, and often a lot of our assessments are online now. They don't even see a human being. They're clicking on, 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 on keys and stuff. But it won't come back to the next fall. But also the person that grades it, they do not know if last night there was a fire in my home, if right. I didn't, if I was hungry last night, if, if someone, we lost someone, our family, uh, our assessment craze and focus is sort of an endless crisis. It keeps us in a crisis mode, making us jump from silly thing to silly thing over there. And I do believe right now, and we've been doing this, uh, these shows on the teacher shortage crisis now for nearly three years at this point. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And I could see that when we're at NPE, uh, right. uh, there are, uh, people from universities across the country saying they don't have, they don't have people in the pipeline. So, right. but some of that, it, it comes to this assessment. And we, we did talk about criteria reference tests and I'm the assessment person here at Central. And I tell people a criteria reference test is a mastery test and only 35 to 40% of your students should reach mastery. Now, depending on how I phrase that, it's gonna look like 60 to 65% of my students are not meeting mastery. Yeah, uh, it's the same thing with norm reference tests, half fall above, half fall right. below. I right. can say 
So it allows us to constantly drive a crisis mentality in our public school system. Half the students are failing, can't read. Uh, 60% of the students can't write. 60% of the students can't do math. And, right. and we're not looking at these assessments. But but coming back to this, this, this piece about the assessment, uh, I noticed that when I was at, at, at in DC with uh, uh, Randy Weingarten, the AFT president, Becky Pringle, uh, who's the NEA president, they gave a talk about this. They gave a talk with Diane Ravage uh, and they talked about how this is, it's driving our teachers away. So, so let's talk about something good. What would keep teachers teaching? What kind of thing? So you talked about teaching for democracy. What, right. what what empowers teachers? Let's have a little conversation about that. Right. Well, and and Jesse, just to report back to what you were just talking about, I remember years ago, um, Pam Perkins um, did this wonderful, interesting study. She was at Chapman, and she um, she did this video of a little girl reading a story, and um, the child made all kinds of miscues multiple times through the story. And Pam interviewed this large audience that she had, a group of students, and they were all completely angry at Pam because they thought Pam should have not given her such a difficult book and that she shouldn't have been, she should have helped her and she should have answered her. And then at the end, Pam did what all of us would do. And she said to the child, well, tell me about the story. And much to the shock of the audience, this child knew every detail of the story absolutely every detail and you know there were people in the audience who were practically screaming at Pam that she was being uh, completely uh, abusive to this child so part of the challenge I think we have with assessment is that we haven't taught teachers what it means to do assessment what what are you looking for what do you want to know and we certainly haven't taught our legislators and the people in the education community who are spending our good public dollars for something that's not helping anybody. I've often argued that if you think about the fact that many of our legislators are attorneys, and no offense against our attorneys, they become attorneys because they have passed the bar. The bar is a very different kind of assessment, isn't it? And if you think that that's the way to assess the world, then you translate that perspective into a classroom. Let's just test the kids more. Let's just test the kids more. Why do we have so many legislators and so many folks in education believing that assessment, the way we're doing it, is valuable? I mean, I grant you, a lot of it has to do with uh, the corruption of the testing industry and companies like Pearson you know, who want to put their fingers in our pocketbooks, and they've done that incredibly well. But how do we convince our, how do people like Randy convince the politicians that I'm sure she meets with that they have it wrong? They have it wrong. We don't know anything about how a kid is learning by these standardized tests. Isn't it Susan Ohanian who said, if you want to know how something grows, you know, you, you put up spikes and you see how far they get up the ladder. That's how we measure a tomato plant. That, that's not what we're doing with kids. We don't know. And I think when you ask about how we help teachers feel like can stay in the classroom, we have to get rid of this notion that this external point of view is what should manage us as professionals. We don't walk into a doctor and tell a doctor what to do. When, you know, when someone's going to have knee replacement surgery, you don't tell the doctor what kind of equipment to use. You trust the professional. The same thing with a dentist, the same thing, uh, I assume, for many of us with attorneys. But somehow or another, that we have turned the tables on the professionalism of teachers and the language that needs to be made. I mean, I heard Randy speaking as well at NPE. Okay, you know, she wants education to be meaningful. She wants kids to have experiential experiences. How do we gain back the professional respect that teachers had? When I was a beginning teacher and I told my family I was a teacher, everybody was like, wow, that's great. You're a teacher. Now teachers are telling their own family, 
don't go into the field. I mean, we have made this horrible turnaround where we're not seen as professionals. And I think the testing piece of it is certainly a part of that, that we've had to take the power of the classroom away from teachers and given it to Pearson and others that are doing all these standardized tests. And I don't know how we turn that around, Jesse, but I know that's part of the problem. Part so, of it is taking that power away. So part of this is, and, and it's, uh, yes, we can do a better job helping parents, helping uh, the public, helping our legislators, helping our policymakers, and helping our, our future teachers understand uh, how assessment works. And we'll do that in my courses, of course, these are things we'll cover right. in our, our literacy center here where we tutor children uh, each week in our center. These are focuses and we talk about the different measures. We talk about standardized measures. Standardized measures are the things that we always hear in the newspapers. Newspapers right. love to say, right. oh, half the nation is can't read or all of this stuff. Right. And what I remind my, my students is a standardized measure is not a measure of an individual. It's a comparison. Uh, it's looking at how a school is doing, how a state is doing, how a nation is doing. It's not really has nothing to do with the individual. It doesn't inform the teacher at what to do next. So standardized measures are probably, could be the most abusive assessment. It's sort of like, I'm giving you a test not to help. Imagine your doctor saying to you, Cynthia, I wanna give you a test that's gonna hurt you Right. Uh, to test, uh, not about your health. I just want to see how everybody else in the nation is doing. Are you right. willing to take that pain for the rest? So that's one piece over there. And we need to, and, and it's not that they're unnecessary. They used to be given, so we're old enough, we don't want to say how old we are, but us young people, uh, we were assessed three times in our public schools. In America's public schools have had standardized assessments in their schools for over 100 years. Right. But in my day, it was three times, once in the third grade, once in the, uh, the sixth grade, and once in the 10th grade. Each time, it was no more than a day or two, depending right. on the school. Right. right now, my schools are taking those assessments every single year, and it's taken eight to 12 weeks to finish all the assessments that are going on. And it's information that really doesn't drive the instruction. So that's one. So we can explain to the public don't believe the hype when you hear the standardized scores. The other ones are summative assessments. And summative assessments are, uh, in the old days, the teachers, when you and I were there, that was we gave the end of the semester chapter. We taught a unit. Where, right. I don't know, maybe it was on the dust bowl, and we wanted to know, right. did you learn everything? Right. And a summative measure like that is a classroom-based measure is very informative to a teacher of how effective what people exactly. learned or didn't learn. And right. that's but now summative assessments are going online and they have nothing to do with what's going on in the classroom. So that's a piece. So summative assessments that teacher created is powerful. Screening measures we have, and we do a lot of screening measures in schools and they're just to say, we screen everybody. We try to do it quick. It's really those things we're saying, it's not an intense assessment. It's not a long assessment. We just want to get an overall look in case there's some people we look at. Screening right. measures aren't being used that way now. They're being used as progress monitors. They're doing multiple times a year. They're not right. following up anything. They're just, it's crazy. And then the most powerful measures of all for our students that are really struggling with uh, literacy, math, uh, with, with school in general, those are diagnostic measures. And diagnostic right. measures are measures given to an individual to create an intervention plan for them. Absolutely. That those measures are the least given during these days right now. And they and have the powerful potential. So my teachers understand that. And then finally, the to give them the other thing, formative assessment is what Yetta Goodman would have called kid watching. Kid and watching. she would have said, just like you said before, uh, right. you want to know how the kid is doing? Talk to them. You know, exactly. watch them. Uh, if you want to see how the tomatoes are growing up the vine, as Susan O'Honnion would say, watch them. You can right. measure them. You can engage right. them. And that, to me, is what gives my teachers hope right now. Because when I break down the assessments in that way, they start to understand that. And I say the most powerful assessment in the classroom 
that's done 95% of every school day is formative assessment is what the teacher does. And this is what, this is your power. So I, I think that's a component of it. Uh, but, but it is hard during these times that we have policymakers, legislators, district leaders, and a nation uh, in love with measures that really don't tell us anything about individual learners and seem to be demoralizing is the term that they use, demoralizing. And, and we do have, we're wondering when you said parents could opt out of these national measures, that's called opt out. And, okay. and we're wondering why there aren't more of them. But, but now we, we've done that piece. Tell me a little bit about how you found out at Antioch that the teacher education program wasn't going to be there next semester. Share a little bit of that because I think that story is going to be tenfold over the next 10 years and we may find ourselves with no teacher education programs left. Yeah. Could you share a little uh, bit of that? That personal experience is rich. Yeah, well, in particular, I think that because we have people coming into the profession or being hired who don't even have bachelor's degrees, it's sort of a death knell for the education programs. So Antioch University, which used to be part of the college, but is separate, has five campuses, one in Keene, New Hampshire, one in uh, Yellow Springs, Ohio, one in uh, Seattle, and then two in California, one in Santa Barbara, and one in Los Angeles, it's actually Culver City. So I was in charge of both the California campuses for teacher education. Um, our, we were up for reaccreditation, Jesse, and in California, the Commission on Teacher Credentialing is very tough, very, very tough. And sadly, and if those of you listening from California will disagree with me, but sadly, the Commission on Teacher Credentialing has become so data-driven. It used to be you could tell your story. Now you have to prove it with numbers. Well, one of the things that they require is an interview with every student teacher and every master teacher which is no small task to get that organized. We were losing enrollment because the university stopped advertising for our program. I don't actually know the reason for that. I don't know if it was expense. I mean, there was no reason not to. The program was very successful. We were one of the few you know, progressive teacher education programs in California, um, but they chose to stop advertising for the program. And so the reason we had to close was because we didn't have enough students for the reaccreditation visit. We would never have passed. So rather than being put on, you know, all the different X's next to our name, they just decided to close the program. So we had to teach out the program. Um, I do think that that is, you know, when I saw Julian at NPE, Julian's program is challenged by numbers. You're challenged by numbers. Everybody I talk to is challenged. The only program that I know that's working right now in terms of bringing in students is Los Angeles Unified School District a number of years ago started a special education intern program. And they are one of the few school districts, as far as I know, certainly in the area that has sufficient numbers of special ed teachers because in the intern program you get hired and you're teaching full time and you're getting paid while you're working on your teacher credentialing. In California, the teacher credentialing program is one year. It's a fifth year program. And it's tough for some teachers, particularly our second language learners, because of all the exams you have to take. There's a subject matter exam, there's a basic skills exam, there's a reading exam, and a lot of people have a lot of trouble passing those tests. So LA Unified has provided support for their special ed teachers to take those tests and to be able to stay in the classroom while they're doing it. So they're essentially emergency permit teachers, but they're getting support to do that. So when I talk with the human resources folks at LA Unified, they have openings for the regular classroom, and particularly in science and math, because everybody's always had the problems getting those teachers. But um, the 
the program that provides support for teachers is is working. So the closure of the credentialing program in, in the two campuses, Santa Barbara and Los Angeles, with no intention of, of opening them back up again, um, was really a heartbreaking situation for a progressive teaching model. And I suspect you're right, Jesse, that this may in fact not be unusual. I know Occidental out here in California closed a couple of years ago. And I think one of the reasons they closed was because of the onerous nature of the uh, reaccreditation process. It's expensive. Uh, it's very time consuming. For a program like ours, where there were three full-time faculty, we were spending more time on accreditation than we were on anything else, which goes back to this notion of assessment becoming the driving force of how we think. How are we doing? What are your numbers? How are you doing compared to other places? And that taking taking so much time, intellectual time, um, staff time, um, emotional time. Are we going to pass? Is it going to be okay? So I, I hadn't thought about it that way until I started talking about it. But I'm wondering if the accreditation process is also having an effect on how programs can maintain their credentialing program. Because that's so, again, going back to that on onerous uh, assessment. It's interesting because it's what we're doing to children, it seems we're doing to our future teachers. So in Connecticut, yeah. our average our students in our undergraduate programs here uh, will spend easily during their their credential and spend you know anywhere from twenty five to thirty thousand dollars a year to become a teacher yes. then an extra two thousand dollars a year not a year but to take the assessments that will give right. them their licensure exam right. and their university the programs that they're at are going through our national accreditation uh things that that take resources that take time that take money and and then in connecticut we have interest in programs like relay which are uh, giving people degrees and graduate degrees and they don't seem to go through those accreditations and they get uh, all these passes on right. this gives them automatic doesn't matter how many who their faculty is doesn't matter whether they have a physical place doesn't matter that's kind of interesting on what's driving in the nation but what i have also looked at is those alternate route programs, the private alternate alternate route programs in in our state at least, are uh, only only taking forty five percent of their teachers to licensure. Ours mm. is near a hundred percent, and we have to ask that question. So that's one. So the accreditation, why uh, alternative routes have a lesser standard and deliver less numbers. But somehow have an easier time. So that that's a whole separate show right. another time, and maybe we have uh, Julian Vasquez with us on that right. one. But when we come down to this this notion about how much money our students are paying, let's think about when my students. I'll talk to them and I'll say, "How can I help you?" So the other day, I had a young man in the office, um, and 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 it, it it's hard to 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 speak to young men who who you think are like you when you were young, and right. they're crying because they don't know how they're going to do their student teaching next semester. Exactly. They, they are uh, a student who is an immigrant to the country, uh, right. is the only person in his family here, and has is, he works 65 hours a week at Walmart. You know, and, and this is how he survives. And he's like, I'm not going to be able to do student teaching. Right. I can't. It's either that, he said. And, and somebody said... Well, you can you can eat uh, ramen noodles. You know, you, you can you can sleep out of your car. And I'm like, no, right. you can't. He, right. has to pay, he has to pay his rent. He has to eat. So we're not thinking about this stuff. This idea about uh, why we need a progressive teacher network, why we why teachers across the nation are are in pain and hurting. We're not doing anything realistic to make them stay there. Teachers are on strike in Portland today. Right. Are they right. on strike? They want to be paid more. There was a bill, uh, I forget who introduced the bill, maybe it was Bernie Sanders' bill, saying that there'd be a minimum salary for teachers across the country of $65,000. After all, they all have to have a degree. After all, um, every state wants them to get a master's degree uh, right. in that sense. But 
we have teachers who are eligible in our states to collect food stamps and work full time, can't own homes, cannot leave leave our universities in massive debt. So what I'm thinking about, we we while the hope of a progressive teacher network is there to to me, this is the hope of keeping teachers who are already in this game in in the game. Right. We don't seem to be offering a lot of hope. We're not saying to our future teachers, you know what? You can if you become a teacher, we'll pay your we'll pay your way. We'll pay you during your student teaching. We'll give you a stipend because that basically means you have about eight to ten weeks where you're you have to give up everything you do to go work at a school for free. So right. can you do that? We don't seem to be doing that. Uh, let me ask you because uh, if I remember right, uh, when you began to think about this progressive teacher network, it was after. Uh, the death of one of your former students. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Share that a little. Yeah. So um, we had, so to go back to your concern about student teaching and being able to survive, you know, I mean, for these programs, those alternative programs where you don't have to student teach, you know, you just go into the classroom. We, we have a very unfair process for how we, how we provide for different teachers in different places. And of course, just as Krashen always says, it's poverty dummy, um, you know, for our students who come from, you know, less than middle-class families <clears throat> who have had um, minimal educational experiences themselves and having difficulty passing their tests, um, this particular student came from that same environment, came from a neighborhood, um, a heavy drug-laden neighborhood, a neighborhood where um, the educational experience was, uh, Jesse, can you see me? You, I've lost you. Hello? Hello? Yeah, I think uh, Jesse, may have just fallen off. Okay, all right, I'll just, keep going. Yeah. Okay, um, so um, anyhow, this particular student uh, who really struggled through the program, um, you know, was homeless, I think, for a period of time, um, <clears throat> got himself involved with some folks that were not the best people to be involved in. And so, um, it, it was heartbreaking. <clears throat> he was actually on the news and was um, killed. Uh, he died in, in custody. Um, and the problem that existed for that is that he could never really get uh, a good teaching position uh, and have any stability within that teaching position. And so um, uh, how, do we, how do we reach out to anybody in their field that needs professional support, uh, I'm not you know, a drug counselor, I'm not a psychological counselor, but to provide teachers with some means of connecting with others so they don't feel so isolated. And that was part of the reason that the, um, there you are, part of the reason that um, the, um, we thought about this support network, you know, a phone number to call. I, I don't know that this young man would have called that phone number but maybe some of his colleagues would have on his behalf to be able to provide him with some support or for us to help him find some support. Um, so yeah, that was, this, that was heartbreaking. So, and I, I think this is an important point for our nation to understand, our policymakers and our legislators to understand that our teachers in the classroom right now are in a mental health crisis, just like our young people are in a mental health crisis. So I have many teachers near the breaking point. Uh, so one of the reasons we're, we're in such a dry, dire strait of, of a shortage right now is because teachers who thought they would stay until they were 60, until they were 65, until they were 68, are leaving now at 50, 55, 58. They're leaving our, our, our classrooms. They're they're talking about what they will do next. Uh, CEA, the Connecticut Education Association, did a survey of its current members. Uh, just gave it out this month. 
November, maybe the end of October. And mm -hmm. they asked their, their, the current teachers in their survey, how many of you plan to remain in teaching? 75% of, of, of the teachers that are in classrooms right now, Connecticut classrooms right now said they plan on either retiring early or looking for another profession. And that only happens when we have a serious mental health crisis. Exactly. And, and this is the stuff that worries about. And uh, long, Harry will remember the first teacher shortage show we did was with Dr. Julian Vasquez Healick, who is now the provost at Western Michigan State University and was the dean. Of, up. Yeah, and, and the dean of, of, of education at the University of Kentucky. And, right. and I remember when we were talking about it, Julian said something three years ago that I'm waiting for our policymakers, I'm waiting for our legis legislators, I'm waiting for our, our district leaders. He, uh, he said, what can we do right now? He said, what we can do right now to stop this bleeding of our teaching profession is to go, into, go to our public schools every day and talk to our teachers and ask them the simple question. What can we do that will make you stay? Right. And because we haven't been asking that question, we're not asking the teachers in our class. We didn't ask that young man no. who, who you knew. We're not asking the young man that I have who's saying, I'm not going to be able to finish the program, Dr. Turner, because the difference between student teaching means I have a home over my head and, right. and I can eat. It isn't right. that anything extra. He's saying, I don't have anything extra. It's not about the car. Even if I take the bus, I have to have a place to sleep at night and I have to be able to feed myself. I can't right. do it if I do this student teaching. And so we're having conversations about what can you do to finish your degree? And maybe, maybe. And what do I have? I have a Latino teacher who would be an incredible teacher. Right. And in the community talking about he has to step back from his dream job of right. teaching. And here he is saying, I won't be able to do it because I don't know how I'm going to afford to feed myself and, and, and to have a place over my head to do this thing called student teaching. So how we're not in crisis mode right now, we're in crisis mode literacy. Oh, the kids can't read, the kids can't write, they can't do math. I, I think my whole life I've heard that, that, that crisis Absolutely. battle. Every decade, oh Absolutely. my God, you know, the last great, I tell people, the last great high school class, when I ask people, I say, do you, can you tell me where that is? Usually it's the one when they left. Yeah. Because everyone after that, we say, kids don't know in university, we say they can't read, they can't write, right. they, can, right. they can't do right. any of this. And, right. and then the university says it's the high school, high school says it's the middle school, the middle school says it's the elementary then it's the kindergarten, then it's the preschool, and it's the and family. The parents, don't right. forget the parents. It's don't always their the So I do think that right now, one of the good, bright, hot, hot highlights, and one of the good news stories, and that was why I asked you to be on the show today, because there's not many people doing something to keep people in the classroom right now. It seems yeah. to be like we've turned blinders on. So uh, a last pitch for the Progressive <laughs> Teacher Network. Can you give it to us? Give us in, so, tell us. And, and would, would I really get you on the phone if I dial up and I say, hello, I need help. You know, yeah, what happens? You, you, you'll get, you'll get a, someone saying, this is the Progressive Teacher Network. Please leave a message. We'll get back to you within 24 hours. That's what you'll get. Um, Jesse, I didn't talk about how this, another reason this idea came about. So years ago, I started doing work with Foxfire. So some of you might remember Foxfire, Elliot Wigington and Foxfire. And one of the things that the Foxfire group did was create um, networks for people. So if you took a Foxfire course on the land in Georgia, you ended up being part of a network. And those teachers met, they had, there was funding that had Foxfire had gotten, and those teachers would meet periodically, once a month, once every couple of months. And the reason they were meeting was twofold. One was to talk about 
how they were incorporating the core practices of Foxfire into their classroom, which is about democratic practice, student-centered work, giving students the opportunity to do harder work and more work than teachers do, and also an opportunity to, to support each other, you know, not just to do the teaching work, but also to support each other. You know, you'd have a cookie and a glass of milk and you'd talk about it. So those networks were funded by some very strong funding activities that Foxfire did. Much of that funding for teachers is long gone, absolutely long gone. Um, so that's where the notion of a network was created. I had a Foxfire network out here in California when I was teaching Foxfire course, courses out here. And we would meet together and we would know that we could, you know, I'm having a problem. Jesse, I'm going to call you. I just tried to do this and it didn't work. What suggestions would you have? So the idea of reimagining networks for teachers so that they can, and I haven't figured this piece out. So Jesse, you can help me with this. Right now we've got a phone number you can call. You'll have access to someone who can help you either listen to your tears, help you with assessment ideas, encourage you to do democratic practice. But I don't know how to connect those people to each other because we're not all in the same geographic area. That would be ideal if we could reinvent those Foxfire networks so people had each other to lean on, not just calling my little advisory group who are all absolutely fabulous educators, all of whom are retired, who are just as concerned about this mess we're in as you and I are, that really want to do something to help our teachers, mainly because we've all had such good experiences as teachers. It, it defined who I was as a person, and it, it made me a better person, and it made me a better person because I was working with young people to help them become the best people they could be. So I'm I'm hoping that this idea will expand. Um, we'll start doing blogs. Hopefully, people will add on to the website with ideas and practices, and and we'll see where it goes. Where is the next step for this? We've had only since well, we launched this at NPE, and since we've launched it, we've had 200 people stop in on the website. I've only gotten two phone calls so far. But, you know, we want people to feel like this is a place for information. The other thing that's there is the clearinghouse. Remember when we had Eric? We had that wonderful clearinghouse from the feds where you can look up stuff for free. So I've put information on the clearinghouse so people can have access so, to So we have yeah. information out there yes. for people. And we, we, we'll, we'll find ways. We'll work on things. What I want to remember to people is teaching is the profession that makes all other professions possible. Absolutely. If, if we sink this profession, we yeah. sink the nation. That's like not another rhyme, another Thank rhythm you. for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at devoiding myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you're stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains, haters swerving, because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up, give up, fall down, I just got